0: Today is March 22nd, 2021, and today we will do a deep dive into the student loan debt crisis in America. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today, hot off the press early on this Monday morning, bringing you all the best news and insights from both sides of the aisle, working hard to parse through the political divide here in America to find that sweet, sweet truth that oftentimes lies right there in the middle. Our episode will be a little bit different today, and it is because of that I think that this could be the best podcast that we have done thus far. I've done a lot of research and I've gotten a lot of good uh, feedback on some of the episodes that we've done that have been single issue episodes where we try to dive down deeper into one specific problem that we see in politics or that we see in finance or we see in America and how it relates to both sides of the aisle, give a little bit of history and context around it, and hopefully are better educated afterwards, and are able to formulate good opinions and have good conversations that reach across the aisle to hopefully find good solutions for some of the problems that we dive a little bit deeper into. So with all of that having been said, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our only subject of the day, the student loan debt crisis in America. So this is a subject that has received a lot of attention over the recent years as the st- You know the student debt is just ever increasing in the United States. Many have dubbed this as the next bubble to burst in the United States economy, kind of akin to and calling back to the 2008 financial crisis that was a result of the housing bubble, or basically a very very large amount of very poor loans that were giving out, given out to houses that were not worth actually how much they were being loaned out. Loans were being given given for them, and as a result, it eventually grew and grew and grew to a point where the bubble bursted and the economy collapsed as a result of it. And many people are pointing to the student loan debt crisis as a a very, very similar situation. Uh, Others, you know, many people are calling it a crisis. You'll notice that I have used that word several times because I think that's kind of the, uh, maybe the common language that he's used around this subject. Uh, But this has obviously prompted many politicians to join into the fray and give their opinions on what they think needs to be done. There also is an increasing amount of emphasis placed upon higher education in the United States, and that has grown significantly over the past 50 or 60 years, which we will get into here in a bit as well. But there are there's a significantly higher percentage of the United States population going into higher education, and that being colleges and universities, and especially within the past 10 to 20 years, an even higher increase of people that we you know otherwise wouldn't have seen at any other point in history of people that are going in to graduate education as well, whether that be doctorate programs or master's, like MBA-type programs, um, because jobs are increasingly calling for this as a means by which for people to differentiate themselves from other people within the broader labor market. Uh, This is especially true in regards to previous generations as well. Uh, Much of the Much of the increase in this has kind of prompted businesses to require increasingly higher levels of education uh, because, you know, for the jobs that just 20 or 30 years ago didn't need that, uh, it was because there weren't as many people with a college degree. So a lot of businesses are almost kind of using higher education as a litmus test for who it is that they would be able to bring in for employment. So there are a plethora of different videos and memes all over the internet that basically talk about this cracking jokes around how ridiculous the requirements oft- often are in the United States right now for even just entry-level jobs where a four-year degree, an MBA, and three years of experience are needed in order to come in to the lowest position that you can possibly be in at that said corporation, doing all the grunt work and a whole lot of copying and pasting that you wouldn't actually need a formal education for. Uh, this is kind of a running joke, especially amongst, amongst uh, millennials that. You know, right now you have to have a ridiculous amount of education and spend a whole lot of money just to get a sheet of paper so that companies will even just look at your resume to begin with. So, we're going to talk through a couple of the big questions around this. The first is how and when did this start? Uh, Is it really that big of a looming issue? What caused it? And what are some of the proposed solutions for fixing it? So, in order to kind of lay a foundation and a little bit of the groundwork for this, what are some of the, what's some of the history around student loans and higher education in the United States? So David Dimming, the professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Graduate School of Education says, quote, the real formative period for United States higher education was more or less 1890 to 1940 when colleges started, when college started to be something that wasn't just a vocation for people going to school. To get a religious education, or for the few and the very wealthy. So, for a very, very long time, in fact, throughout the vast majority of human history, when there, you know, has since there's been universities or higher education learning places, uh, higher education was primarily for wealthy people that wanted to go into very specialized vocations. So, think lawyer, doctor, and also primarily some type of minister of some sort or another. Although there were colleges for women or, you know, maybe in the United States, historically black colleges, these were fairly few and far between up until really kind of the 1960s or 70s. Uh, there were some, but they, they really were, uh, they were kind of sparse to say the least. Um, especially compared to the options uh, that were there for wealthier, primarily white men who made up the vast majority of the students that went to school in the United States. So in 1919, there were an estimated five hundred and ninety eight thousand people enrolled in universities across the United States in 1944. Congress passed the GI Bill, uh, which allowed millions of veterans to go to college completely for free. So the United States Senate and House of Representatives looked at all of the GIs, all of the veterans that were coming back from World War II. And they were realizing that a lot of these people had been incredibly disadvantaged because they'd just been at war for the past four or five years. And they needed to be able to have some sort of help in getting reimmersed back into the United States economy. And one of the best ways to do that is through some sort of formal education. So the government said, if you are a veteran or if you are conscripted into the military in some sort of fashion, we will pay for your education to a two or a four year uh, higher education institution. So then in 1954, the Supreme Court decision Brown and in the, in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education made it illegal to have completely segregated schools, which then started to pave the way for more black and minority students to be able to actually enter into colleges that historically would not have allowed them to be able to enter. I think a lot of people see and see you know images like the the girl that was in Little Rock, Arkansas, and you know the National Guard showed up and you know escorted her into the school. And when people think of the repercussions of Brown versus the Board of Education and basically getting rid of the whole separate but equal uh, doctrine that was laid out in Plessy versus Ferguson in the late 1800s. They normally think of, you know, elementary schools, middle schools and high schools, but it actually had an incredibly profound effect amongst higher education as well because the vast majority of the institutions especially in the 1950s were public universities. That was or at least that's where the vast majority of people actually went to get their education was in publicly funded universities of some sort or another. So In 1958, as we're moving kind of along this timeline of history of students, uh, student loans, uh, the Cold War was absolutely heating up, pun intended. And there were growing fears in the United States that technology and educationally, we were very, very far behind the Soviet Union, which then prompted Congress to pass the National Defense Education Act. So this was signed into law by President Dwight Eisenhower, and the law created a low interest, you know, way for federal student loans, debt cancellation for students who became teachers and graduate fellowships for students who specifically studied fields like mathematics and engineering. So it almost kind of like kind of created and set aside the STEM, all of the STEM subjects as, uh, you know, in other words, kind of the United States believed that it was a problem of national defense, not having an incredibly well-educated population. So Congress and, you know, the president got together and they were like, we need to do something about this so that our education is producing scientists and producing people that will be able to defend our country if we need them to during this Cold War period. Um And effectively created the first loans being handed out by the United States government, insured by the United States government for people that wanted to attend colleges or universities. And this caused a substantial increase in the number of students that wanted to go get higher education and now had the opportunity to actually do this. Like I said before, uh, it was incredibly expensive to go to any sort of higher education uh, and it was also not open to everyone so once you get into the late 1950s it's now open to everyone and the government is actually funding it and giving out federal student aid and giving out federal student loans so now all of these people that otherwise would have never had the opportunity to get any sort of formal or higher education and being you know studying in one of these different institutes across the United States they now, have the opportunity to do it, and many decided to to actually go for it. You know, and when you look with the baby boomer generation, especially uh, that were born after World War II, the vast majority of them were coming into and being born and raising in, uh, raised in one of the most booming economies that the United States had ever seen, if not the most booming economy that the United States had ever seen. Uh, it was roaring on all cylinders. All the time. Our GDP was going up every single year by substantial amounts. The economy as a whole was growing by substantial amounts. The service sector and the industrial sector are both going well. And the service sector, in a lot of ways, was kind of in its infancy, but was, I mean, starting to balloon because you had a lot of people that now were making enough money to be able to, to go out and spend on an incredible amount of things that were luxury items or luxury services that before World War II, they never would have had the money to actually spend it on. So. Moving forward now, in 1973, the Student Loan Marketing Association, or better known colloquially as the Sal- uh, Sally Mae, was created. So this was a government-sponsored entity with the express goal of servicing issued student loans by the government. So it slowly but surely evolved to begin to actually give out loans as well, and that's later on. It actually is now its own private corporation. It was spun off from the government. It is no longer a government-sponsored entity, but it is currently now the largest originator of federally insured student loans. So Sally May was created because the federal government was now giving out such a large volume of student loans to so many people across the United States that it actually was incredibly expensive to actually service these loans. And when I say service loans, I mean, if you have somebody that uh, has a question about their interest rate, or if you have somebody that uh, you know needs to get their payment in, that you know the payments need to be collected, they need to be processed. You know the the loan needs to be paid down; it needs to be paid off. Uh, all of these things uh, take money, they take resources, and they take effort from employees. So the federal government decided to create its own government-sponsored corporation to be able to handle the incredible volume that they were seeing in this. So in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan entered office. And uh, with that began absolutely sweeping tax reforms. So, Ronald Reagan is incredibly famous for this more kind of laissez-faire, more libertarian type of economics that we have talked at length about on our podcast. So, if you have any other questions about that, you know, feel free to to look back in uh, to some of our older podcasts because I actually go through and talk a lot about uh, the differences between Keynesian economic policies or uh, like more Milton Friedman type of economic policies. But in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan. Came in and and really adopted in a lot more of those very, very low taxes, small government type of legislation. Okay. So he started lowering taxes all the way across the board, and states started passing tax and expenditure limitations, which basically would be limiting the amount of money that states could bring in through taxes and also spend as well. The idea was to be able to shrink the size of government because in the 1980s there was a large push away from big government. This was spurred on by a wide variety of different topics, especially within the world as a whole. If you're looking at Russia or China, some of the biggest enemies of the United States in the 1980s, they all primarily operated under the guise of an incredibly large government. So the United States there was a big push away from that. So in order to cope with the significantly less revenue that governance governments, both state and the federal as well, were bringing in through the reduced taxes, they needed to shrink their balance sheets and they needed to stop handing out so much money uh, through a wide variety of different ways. That they did that. This was made up for in the United States. Uh, and and you know different states across the country in different ways, but one of the primary ways that many of these states started shrinking their budget was actually to decrease the funding for public and state universities w- within their state. Uh, so this made uh, the, basically the money was uh, either made up for by increasing tuition at the public universities or spending less on the universities and the student aid as a whole. You know you can't actually go out and fund these universities if you don't have the money to fund them with. So you have to raise that tuition so the university can continue to, to operate at the same standard that they were, or you just have to offer less at the university. So as a result, uh, uh, you know, this started to You know, cut spending on higher education and the aid that was given to students. So the college board estimates that during the nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty one school year, on average, it costs students the modern equivalent of about seventeen thousand four hundred dollars to attend a private college and about seventy nine hundred dollars to attend a public college. That includes tuition, fees, room, and board. Okay. By nineteen ninety, just one decade later, that increased to twenty six thousand and fifty and then. $9,800 respectively. So it was an incredible increase in the inflation and the cost of going to a university during the 1980s. That was a direct result of the lack of funding from the federal government that many of these universities uh, were very, very dependent on. So now fast forward to 2008. The economy goes into an incredibly deep recession, prompting further cuts to higher education as states and the federal government scramble to keep their budgets above water. And this causes many universities to then raise tuition even higher to recoup a lot of the costs that they're no longer, a lot of the, you know, funding that they're no longer getting from the government. Uh, At the same time, many people that lost jobs realized that in order to stay competitive within the labor market, they had to be able to differentiate themselves and in One of the clearest ways to differentiate yourself was with higher education. So millions of people started to enroll themselves in universities to get better jobs and take out increasingly larger loans to do so because the prices of the universities were increasing at incredibly large rates uh, with the idea that they'd be able to pay it all back once they landed a job after university, after their undergraduate degree. So the state funding of two and four-year universities has actually still not gotten back to the 2008 levels, the pre-2008 levels. There's still about a six to seven billion dollar shortfall uh, when you're looking at compared to 2007 compared to now. So colleges and universities, Uh, are, are still receiving less money in aid from the government's state and federal governments than they were before 2008. And as a result, they're having to continue to raise prices in order to be able to recoup a lot of those costs. So during the 2019 and 2020 school year, the average cost of tuition, fees, room, and board was $21,950 for in state students at public universities, $38,330 for out of state students at public universities, and a whopping $50,000 for private nonprofit universities. On average, a student graduating from a university has about $30,000 in student loan debt right now, with many people having significantly more, depending on the area of study that they went to, that may cost a, a certain amount more or require longer schooling, and of course is very dependent upon the university that you go to. So there are plenty of people that decide to go to private universities uh, because they think that they're going to get a better education or have better opportunities post their undergraduate or graduate degree. And as a result, they have to take out significantly more money in order to go there. So the key shift here is in who the responsibility for paying for higher education comes down to. If you look at the early 1900s, education was very, very expensive and was pretty much uh, the person, the student, and their family were responsible for the payment of that specific education. If you went to college in the early 1900s or the late 1800s, you pretty much knew that you would be getting absolutely zero help from the government or from anybody else outside of you actually going to university and paying for it yourself or for your parents paying for it as well. In the mid 1950s, that actually started to shift a little bit to the entirety of the United States responsibility to pay for higher education through taxes and the funding of local and state universities. uh, They made it much, much cheaper with the United States government actually issuing and insuring a lot of the debt that was being taken out in order to pay for the higher education. But because the federal government was the one that was funding a lot of these universities as well, they were able to keep the cost of the universities significantly lower. So students, if they did take out a loan, it would be very, very small and it would be backed by the government and they could pay it out over a larger period of time. By the end of the 1900s, when you're looking into the 1990s and even into the early 2000s and where we're at now, the responsibility has actually shifted back to the student and the family to pay for higher education. However, the difference now is that there's now a societal expectation for higher education to be in place, thus requiring higher education for jobs, but the education for the jobs is incredibly expensive. So, When you look at the early 1900s, yes, the responsibility was on the student and the student's family to pay for their education. However, there were not a lot of jobs that required a four-year college degree, a bachelor's degree of some sort, in order for you to be employed at that company. Because if you did, there'd be a very small pool of people to actually pull from. Now, the, the the responsibility is in a lot of ways shifted back to the student and shifted back to the family in order to be able to pay for it because there's a significantly less amount of funding in universities done through taxes and through the federal and state governments. However, the... Uh, just about every job nowadays requires at least a four year degree in order to be able to work for that job. So, this is what has led to the $1.6 trillion worth of student loans that are currently being held by the United States population as a whole. The, the student loan debt is actually the single highest cause of debt outside of homes than for anything else. Okay. So, the only thing that people have more debt on with in the United States is actually on the physical asset of the roof that is over your head. Okay. In fact, there are plenty of people that hold student loan debt that is the size of a mortgage. Uh, This is incredibly anecdotal, but um, I worked for a little while as a credit analyst for a company that was giving out uh, a wide variety of different loans, but uh, I, through the credit anal- analysis process, you sit down and you look at the entirety of the debt and the income that you know this said person who is applying for a loan has. And I saw plenty of different applications that came in with people that had two hundred, two hundred and fifty, three hundred, sometimes even five hundred thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, uh, especially if they were doctors or if they were lawyers of some sort, where they had to get a formal undergraduate education from a prestigious university. And then they had to get a graduate education from a prestigious university. And you're talking about eight full years of schooling. And sometimes those schools, if you're going to a larger uh, private institution that is very expensive, it can run you $75,000 a year easily to be able to pay for that. Um, so, uh it, as a result it obviously it forces people and not necessarily forces people but uh, because nobody's holding a gun to your head to force you to go to college but uh, students feel they, they are required to go and take out these gigantic student loans in order for them to be able to make any type of sizable uh, salary or wage once they enter the workforce so what are some proposed solutions for this there are a wide variety of different solutions that have been proposed on how to solve this issue and is heavily divided along partisan lines, as most things are. So we're going to look at what the left has to say and what the right has to say and see if there's any good or bad to both. So the left, the left has, a, has especially in recent years, has had a significant push towards canceling or the government bailing out all of the students in order to eliminate the student debt crisis. The argument here is basically... Basically, this it is the government's fault for allowing or promoting the incredible increases in costs for universities across the country by underfunding them in a lot of ways, or uh, ensuring that the student loans were going to be paid off, so universities continually charge more and more because they can. And as a result, it's the government's responsibility to cancel that debt and solve the problem that they. Caused in the first place. Much of this argument takes a look at especially the millennial generation that is incredibly shackled by student loan debt. Uh, Many different studies have found that uh, uh, they're delaying a lot of very large milestones and life decisions in order to be able to pay down and pay off the debt that they get from going to college or university. One survey found that 21% of borrowers have delayed getting married, 26% have pushed back having kids, and 36% have put off buying a home simply because they had such a large looming debt of student loans above their head that they felt like they couldn't make those incredibly important life decisions while being underneath that much debt. The left also looks at that and says, this is going to be detrimental to the economy going forward. And as a result, paying off that student loan debt is the solution that will allow the millennial generation to get, you know, on with more financing and more firm financial footing in the future that will then allow the economy to grow in a much more substantial manner and long lasting manner going forward. So it's not just the idea that the left wants to go out and just give everybody a whole bunch of free stuff, right? I don't, I don't think that that is normally the argument or at least not the nuanced argument that is given from the left side of the aisle for canceling student loans. Most of it relies in circles along along you know this kind of central piece of the economy is going to be incredibly damaged by millennials not being able to make a lot of these life decisions and and you know buy houses and have kids and, you know, buy, you know, different cars and stuff that will stimulate the economy in the future in incredibly substantial ways, right? If they are getting any inheritance from their families as they pass away, or, uh, they're making money, through jobs that they get. A lot of that, if you've got 50 or 100 grand worth of student loans, is going straight to paying off uh, some company for you going and getting your education. If you did not have that, that 50 or $100,000 would be directly reinvested back into uh, the economy in a wide variety of different ways, whether it's through purchases, whether it's through the creation of businesses, whether it's through uh, you know the funding of various charities or whatever it may be, that incredible amount of money that, that these millennials have just kind of sitting over their head in the future is going to be very, very hurtful for the economy as a whole. So the right, the right is much more ambiguous about what their approach would be uh, in order how to solve this problem. Their solution in some ways is to do nothing. Okay, and obviously it's much more nuanced than that but the primary goal for the for the right side of the aisle would basically to be to let the free market labor market decide whether or not higher education is worth the cost of going and getting the idea here is that the tuition and the cost for a higher education will eventually get to the point where people realize that it's just not worth the investment and will stop going to college and stop going to universities and instead just start working or find companies that are willing to invest in them and teach them how to do the job without them having to go and get a higher education to do that job. This will eventually force colleges to either lower their price to keep the students coming in or show the value of their education in in leading to significantly higher chances of making more money over the course of someone's life. So the universities then will be forced to go out and compete to actually bring the students into the universities. And this is, you know, along the lines of that more kind of laissez-faire type of Milton Friedman economics where you have a free labor market and they will decide what is going to be be best for them going forward. If they decide that it costs too much to go to school, they're not going to go to school. It follows a, very much along the lines of like the whole pick yourself up by your bootstraps Republican mantra. I know that, that gets overused a lot, but that is it's kind of a good way to kind of personify a lot of the ways that uh, the right looks at some of the problems in the United States. Uh, basically that if, if you want to make money, but think college isn't worth it, then people will figure out how to do it. There's definitely this mantra and this idea on the right side of the aisle that people are going to figure it out, right? People are going, if they're left to their own devices, will discover how to provide for themselves and for their family, and they'll do it in a way that's mutually beneficial for the society around them. In terms of legislative moves, much of the right actually wants to pull the federal government out of the problem altogether and basically have education based upon a local level or municipality level with parents and students making decisions about whether or not to go to higher education and not have the government insuring or backing a lot of the loans if they decide to go and do it. Uh, Basically, not allowing student loans to be insured by the federal government would force the companies that are giving out these loans to actually be held accountable for receiving the payment for them. So theoretically, this would make it so that companies are forced to give out loans to students that they actually believe will pay back the money right? Imagine that. Imagine, uh, imagine a company that's giving out a student loan uh, to, would, to actually be worried about whether or not they're going to get the payment back. You know, and this, of course, would be done instead of just passing the buck to the pa- taxpayer. Because at the end of the day, if the federal government cancels all the student loans, it's not the, you know, the, the theoretical federal government up there, it's not going to be Joe Biden that's paying for it or Nancy Pelosi that's paying for it, it's going to be the everyday taxpayer that has to pay for it. And if that's what actually happens, then there are going to be a lot of people that either a paid off their student loans already that are having to pay for other people's student loans, or a lot of people that opted not to go to college completely that then have to pay for other people's student loans that they took out from, from these incredibly expensive universities and they had nothing to do with it. Okay. The right side of the aisle looks at that and they're like, that's not fair to those people. I don't think that we should do that. So where's this going? right? Where, where does it go here from here? At this point, there really is no telling. Uh, I honestly would be very, very surprised if in the next two years, uh, while the Democrats have control of both houses of Congress and uh, also the executive branch as well, if there wasn't some sort of large student loan debt reform legislation that was passed, uh, right now it looks like the Democrats are leaving, leaning very heavily towards canceling or at least significantly reducing a large portion of of the student loans. And if they did that, it of course would be the federal government that would be paying a lot of that off. And the universities would be off the hook for charging an ever-increasing amount of money for going to those schools. Uh, What that will do and how it will impact the economy is yet to be seen. There's definitely an argument that by canceling student loan debt, you now have an opportunity for a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have that money to invest in the economy that now have that money to invest in the economy. However, the economy will be increasingly slowed down over the next 10 years if the spending of the federal government continues to increase, right? Because they're going to have to raise taxes eventually and they're going to have to be able to get that money coming into the federal government some way. So the taxpayers are going to be the ones that have to pay for it in one way or another. Uh, when it's all said and done though, something will have to change. The fact that there are, is coming up on $2 trillion worth of student loan debt in the United States is absolutely unbelievable. That is such a large amount of money that is literally just people owing other people money because they decided to go get an education because in order to get a job, they feel like they have to have this education, um, But because of the way the student loan debt is insured right now, there really is no way that the government would be able to let the whole thing flop um, because they're kind of on the hook for a very, very large portion of that $1.6 trillion. So uh, where this goes, I don't know, Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I do think that There's going to have to be some sort of reform that comes down the pipe. And it looks like uh, the the left side of the aisle are the ones that are really pushing hard to try and, you know, quote, solve this problem right now. Uh, Because I think that there are a lot of people that would love to get their student loan debt canceled, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) So uh, the left knows that this is a sticking point for especially a lot of the younger generations. And they're a gigantic voting block and will be for a very long time. So if you scratch their back, Maybe they'll scratch the Democrats back a little bit as well. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our story, our deep dive into the student loan debt crisis in America for today with, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and hop on into our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this weekend, uh, was actually kind of twofold. There were two big birthdays that I got to celebrate this weekend from, uh, one from my dad and then one from a good buddy of mine. And we got to go and hang out and laugh and have some good drinks and have some good talks and have a great time. And it was a ton of fun all all the way around. I think celebrating birthdays and celebrating milestones with close friends and family is always a really, really fun and enjoyable things. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's one of those things where it's like, you get to celebrate that time with that person and it's another year for that they're still here and you know another year that you obviously get to get closer to them and and have more fun with many more memories to share. So that's my Made Me Smile for today and for the early part of this week. So thank you so much for stopping in and for checking us out. That is the end of our episode today. As always, y'all remember to find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I am on YouTube and Facebook at Split the Difference as well and my website at Split the Difference with one T. Go and find me there. Drop me the likes and the subscribes and all of those thumbs up because that stuff helps a ton in helping me to know what content that y'all like that you want me to curate. And it also gets me mixed into all of those funky algorithms that help me get into the ears of people that may or may not have heard of me before. So as always, y'all remember we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.